everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. So this is a little bit of a bonus episode, and more importantly, it's a different format than I usually do. So if you've been listening to the past episodes, you know that I've been partnering with Watts Production with the release of their new drama series called Frame of Reference. And if you haven't watched Frame of Reference yet, hit the show notes. You have to get the WFAA Plus app, which is available on Amazon Fire or Roku, and you can watch the series. Now, for those who haven't watched the series, I personally have already watched it three times. The series is about a young, highly competitive black chief technology officer who's diagnosed with Parkinson's. Due to his diagnosis, he becomes obsessed with trying to control the inevitable. The series explores the vulnerable and often hectic lives of a close-knit group of friends and provides a truthful evaluation of how fear and past misfortunes can define our present point of view. So on today's episode, we wanted to have a conversation of art imitating life. So I invited the producer of the series, Cashel Zachary, and the actor who plays the CTO, Edmund Larea, to the podcast to chat with a real-life CTO, Leslie Miley. So let me tell you a little bit more about each of my guests. First, I have Cashel Zachary. Cashel's a writer, director, and one half of Watts Production. She grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in 1998 to go to college, and after two years and still undecided about a major, she quickly learned that her heart and focus was more rooted in creative productions and writing. With that discovery, she made her way to Dallas, Texas, where she eventually started her own production company in 2008 alongside her sister and business partner, Kalisha Zachary, and their passion and patented process and dedication for high-quality productions is the heart and intention of every experience they create, and they are the creators of Frame of Reference. Now, next up, I have Edmund Larea, and Edmund was born in Naples, Italy. He lived in Italy for 10 years and also spent a year living in Nigeria. Edmund plays Ethan Scott, the main character who is the CTO on the drama series Frame of Reference. Prior to his acting career, he worked at CBS Sports in a production role. And last but never least, let me introduce you to Leslie Miley. Leslie is the complicated man who risks his neck for non-binary peeps, trans folk, women, and men. Leslie is the former CTO of the Obama Foundation, He's a technical advisor to the CTO of Microsoft, a self-taught engineer, an advocate or activist for all races, non-binary slash trans folks, women, and men. Born in Silicon Valley, Leslie started his career hacking cable set-top boxes and phone systems as a teenager and hanging out at the Radio Shack learning the basic programming language. He eventually started working as a security guard at Apple, where he picked up programming, and you'll hear more about this story in the episode. Leslie worked his way from an entry-level engineering role to leadership roles at Google, Slack, Walmart, Microsoft, Twitter, and Apple. You can also learn more about him from his writings about his experience, and he's cited in several technology publications such as Fast Company, TechCrunch, Associated Press, and The Guardian. 
On this episode, we get real and candid about experiences working in tech. We talk about the life and imitation of being a Black CTO and so much more. I highly recommend that you share this episode with allies and other people who are in your tech community because this is going to be a good one. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, make sure to rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this episode today. Now, let's get it. Everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I'm doing a different type of episode today where we're doing art that imitates life. And so, as you know, I've been partnering with Watts Production for their drama series, Frame of Reference. And so today I'm joined by Cashel and Edmund, and we are imitating the life of a real CTO with Leslie. So to start this episode, I want to start with the series Frame of Reference. So main character, Ethan, played by you, Edmund is a CTO. Edmund, when you were playing the CTO role, how did you want to express yourself as a CTO? Did you see them as someone who was extremely confident, that they had a lot of tech skills? What was your initial thought? So first and foremost, a lot of credit goes out to Cashel for writing a great script, but also writing a very intriguing and layered character. So when it came down to Ethan, there were a lot of things about him that were really intriguing to me. Like I never worked as a CTO. I never worked in a space outside of TV production, especially on a level of that magnitude. So the most important thing for me was to represent someone who actually had a lot of natural talent in their field, but also somebody who was very knowledgeable. So the thing with Ethan is He's got a lot of talent, he's very knowledgeable, and he's very driven. And when you want to represent someone who works in a space that's very unique, and a lot of people don't get to see the intricacies or the the depth, you want to have an awareness about what it means and what it takes to actually get to that level. So for me, it was more about doing research that really pertained to how do people exist in these spaces. But most importantly, when it came to Ethan as a person, I just wanted to show how confident he was in the space that he was in. And one thing that I think people need to be aware of is as a black man in these spaces, you spend more time at work because you're constantly trying to prove yourself. You want to make sure that you're on top of the work. And for me, we're just really showing that he was very confident. He spent a lot of time owning his skill and he knew he was the next in line and he wanted to do everything in his power to make sure that he was ready for the next step in his career. So that was really the major thing for me when portraying Ethan. Now, Kashal, I want your opinion as well, because obviously you wrote the role, but more importantly, your dad worked in tech. And so you had some experience where you saw this firsthand. So yes. when you were writing the character, what were you expecting from a portrayal perspective? I was expecting to express some of my father's grievances, if that kind of makes sense. He was in tech. He was an engineer for an airline carrier, and he would often come home and express to us how challenging it was being a person of color in an all-white space, how ideas were often taken and not credited properly, how they often mistook him as not an engineer. And so I listened to that and I just remember sometimes my father would be so angry and he smoked cigarettes and he would take his cools and pop it in and it cools and he would take it out. And I'd be like, daddy, what's going on? He's like, just give me a minute. So we were able to see firsthand his frustration. So when I was writing Frame of Reference, I was like, I'm writing this for my father so that black men in tech that look like him 
and moved like him can be seen and felt. And so my father also was a football player. He played for the University of Tulsa and playing also resulted in him having Parkinson's. And so on top of being in tech, having Parkinson's and trying to not let the effects of Parkinson's affect the job. It was tough. It was tough to watch. And so I wanted to make sure that when I told this story, I did it with a lot of authenticity to what I saw growing up. And I wanted to give voices to people of color who work in all white spaces. It's not easy. And so I thought I did a good job of that. I thought Edmund did an excellent job of portraying that. And that's where the inspiration came from, real life. I mean, you hit it right on the head. Being in tech, especially as a person of color, often you're the only one in the room. Sometimes, like you said, your ideas are stolen. But don't take my word for it. Leslie, I want you to jump in here. Everything that they described, is that your experience in tech? At different points, yes. But not all at the same time. I mean, the confidence that you speak of, I mean, I wish I had that early on. I had hubris, arrogance, and ignorance early on. The confidence didn't come later. The interesting thing is confidence isn't a continuum, or maybe it is on a continuum, because it ebbs and flows. There were some places where I thought, you know, I have domain expertise, I know what I'm doing. And this is like just part about being a programmer as well. And then other times you're like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> and, and that could be three years after I thought I knew exactly what I was doing. And I had control and command of what was going on. So it ebbs and flows. And then you factor in being in white spaces and becoming more aware of that over time. I'll give you where I started and how it shaped how I navigated tech early on. My real career in tech was walking around Apple as an 18-year-old security guard during the graveyard shift and seeing these old dudes or older guys sitting at the computer programming. But I taught myself how to program as a kid. And I told them I knew how to program and they would let me sit with them. And they didn't care that I was this young black kid in polyester as a security guard. They were just like, you know, if you have some skills, sit here and learn with us and chop it up with us. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And I realized that to them, at least in interacting through technology, that my color, my ethnicity, my race didn't come into play. We were just a bunch of geeks. We were just a bunch of nerds. We were doing what nerds do. We're talking about Star Trek, right? We're talking about referencing pointers, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, this must be what post-racial America can look like. And honestly, somewhere in the back of my mind, that was it because I was like, I'm just, and it's three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, while I should be walking around the building, making sure it doesn't burn down, I'm drinking Jolt Cola with these guys. And so that was my beginning. And it really framed how I navigated tech. I thought because of that initial experience that if I had the skill, if I had the knowledge, or if I could acquire it, then I would always be on a level playing field. And so that's how I really started navigating tech early on. And that's good and it's bad because it's good that I had the drive. It's good that I had the passion. It's good that I could acquire the knowledge. It's bad because it's delusional. And it's delusional because white people are white people and they have their own biases and they have their own experiences and they have their own racism and it does come out. And I'm glad that you got a name like Ethan, because I can tell you, I've shown up at interviews and this is before LinkedIn. So nobody knew what you looked like. And you would send your resume and my resume says Leslie and Miley. And so they would think there's a white woman waiting for him in the lobby. And many times, <laughs> they're, like the recruiter, <laughs> the hiring manager would come out and look around and go to the front and say, is Leslie here? And they're like, yes, that's him over there. 
You didn't expect to see a black man. Surprise. Think about experiencing that as you go to interview for a job. I mean, unless you either have some thick skin or you're delusional or a, a variety of things, you have to navigate that. And more often than not, I had to navigate that during an interview process, trying to prove myself technically, trying to prove myself culturally, which is just really difficult, particularly in some of the strong cultures I've worked at in Silicon Valley. Actually, there's a point in frame of reference where Ethan gives. I guess we can call him the villain of the workplace is a white gentleman, but he gives him a couple different resources to interview for a position. And there's a scene where the gentleman's like, well, I couldn't pronounce their name. So I didn't want to hire them. And so you see that bias and Cashel, when you wrote that scene, where did that inspiration come from? What were you thinking? It came from real life. I would actually had an experience where I overheard a conversation by non-people of color and they literally were saying, I could not pronounce her name. I was like, what type of name is in the story? I said, a quanta. And I wrote the character where you can't even see the skillful, talented individual simply because her name is a quanta. And I've listened to black people talk about, I changed my name. Uh, it would either go by just my initials or they had to finesse their, to me, their identity. They couldn't show up as their full selves because they didn't want to be taken out of the pool as a potential candidate. So the reality of Leslie sharing that example, just the name, we could have a whole conversation on how our names kick us out of a lot of opportunities. And you and someone, oh, that's crazy. Not not your name. It can't be that serious. And it truly is. And so I wanted to make sure that I highlighted that because I've seen that often and I would hear that often. And you would just have to bite your tongue and just do more listening than confronting. And I was like, when I get a chance, I'm going to highlight that. And so writing that experience in was so important to me because it happens every day. Can I throw some fuel on that fire? Absolutely. Um, no you were totally reminding me of even going beyond that. So I was at Apple. I was a you know senior manager and we were interviewing. And after interviewed, it was like maybe a week or two, we're sitting doing a debrief of a candidate. And this older woman, an older white man who's in the group said, are we going to interview any white people? I was like, oh, oh hold on. Like, We've interviewed all these women of color. It would just be good to interview some white people. I was like, um, I asked him to leave. I apologize for him to the women in the room in particular. And then they might call him back in and say, stay right there. And then I called HR. <laughs> I'm like, no, we're having this discussion right now. And I just told them what happened. And you could hear the silence. It was like the deafening silence of the HR. She's like, we'll schedule some time with him. I think he needs, you know. And I remember when he was leaving, I said, you know, if you ever say anything like that again in my presence, I will fire you on the spot. And I will make it stick. I am not going to tolerate that. I actually should have fired him. But it's that energy that people bring. I would never sit there and say, are we going to hire some black people? Are we going to interview some black people? Are we going to interview some black women? I'd love to say that, right? But up until that point, I never said it. Now, since that time, I have said, <laughs> since that time, I've been like an advocate and make sure that that happened. But I was just like, wow, what kind of energy are you bringing where you felt that was okay when 70% of the people here are white? Yes, Leslie. Mm-hmm. That leads me to a, another topic or another theme of frame of reference where Ethan, he was bringing on his homeboys 
to the tech company. He was getting them roles and everyone was, well, where are they getting basically all these black men from or these black people? And I don't know for you, Edmund, if that resonated with you. Complete transparency. I worked at CBS Sports for six and a half years. So I worked in production. So a lot of the experiences I faced, my intention wasn't to change the culture at the workplace because just being honest, I didn't feel like I had the ability to do that. But what I did have was I worked really hard. So I was able to build a relationship and gain some trust, which allowed for me to be able to say, hey, listen, I have a guy. Can you help bring him on? And I would have one guy or girl every year that I would bring on and hoping to start a cycle. And the reason why I did that is because it was very evident. I was one of 62 people on a big production and you're on the production crew and you're covering whether it's NFL, college football, college basketball, and it's just you that's black. And you have to be the standard. And maybe it's self-inflicted, but like there was a level of responsibility of like, I have to be the standard so there can be more of me in the near future. But I also have to take accountability and I have to work hard enough that if I refer anybody or try to bring anybody in, I have a good enough rapport with all my coworkers that they would at least allow for somebody to get an opportunity. I channeled a little bit of that. So as Ethan having that relationship with Malik or as Ethan bringing in Xavier from Apple to come work at Tri-Level, it's just a sense of I'm doing the work. So there's an accountability and there's a level of respect and trust that people have with me that if I want to bring somebody on, they won't question it. So the reality is this, if you want to make any significant change, it takes some time to actually make it happen. You have to work beyond yourself. Your goals have to be more than just personal. It has to be, how can I get somebody else on? And me and Ethan had very similar intentions with that. Once again, a lot of credit took a shell because she really thought outside the box, creating these worlds and these storylines. And I know a lot of them came from like real significant, truthful places, but a lot of them are a reflection of real life situations that a lot of us deal with. If I'm the CTO and I don't get nobody else on, I don't know how truly accomplished as Ethan I would feel. It's just a level of like, okay, maybe I get to this goal. Maybe I'm the big man on campus. Maybe I'm the guy at my company. But if I'm not bringing anybody else along, I'm not making any significant change in the life of other people. I don't really know how rewarding that is. So that was a part that I was really, really able to relate with Ethan as an actor. Like all of this is just like, it resonates so much because they're all like little pieces of my experience. I'm sure, I'm sure. So I was at walmart.com. I was a senior engineering director in the, the executive suite and I was hired. And I built a team of like 60 people. And when I say I was at walmart.com, I was part of the founding team of walmart.com. There was no walmart.com before we created it. It just didn't exist. So we had scaled it. We're doing a couple hundred million a year. I'm still growing my teams. And like you said, Edmund, you're reaching into your network and you're pulling people and your network looks like you. So I have somebody come in, makes it through the interview process. And he was a hard negotiator. And so they ran into an impasse. So I go to the VP of recruiting and I'm like, hey, he made it through the interview process, blah, 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 blah. She's like, well, you know, we just don't want to pay him that much. And I'm like, well, we pay everybody else as much with the same experience. I don't understand what, what's the difference. She's like, you're just trying to get more money for your friend. Wow. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. <laughs> like, hold on, time out. One, he's not my friend. I worked with him before. 
he comes recommended. It's like, dude, he's qualified. We're paying everybody else's. She's like, well, you know, you know, I, I know this is a black thing. This is what she said to me. Like VP of HR said, I know this is a black thing. Wow. <laughs> I was like, and this is why, I mean, I have some cynicism that runs deep. <laughs> and this is one of the reasons it runs really deep mm-hmm. is because I'm like, so we have this dude named Bavesh who has an entire team of Indians. Everybody is like, has anybody said anything about that? No, he would be the second black person in engineering. <laughs> I mean, out of like a 300 team, he's like the absurdity of it. Mm-hmm. The absurd- and the absurdity of it is that she's also a woman of color. She's from the Mideast. She's a woman of color. And she said that. So trying to bring people along isn't just building up the confidence, building up your network. It's also having to navigate that. I didn't get the guy hired. I couldn't navigate it. I think I may have said something along the lines of, well, if it's this hard for you to pay him, then he shouldn't work here and he should go get paid someplace else. So fine, I'm, I'm fine with it. We'll find somebody else and just walk out. And that's kind of been a theme of my career is while I appreciate people who can find that path and work it, I can't do it. I mean, I I can't even come close to doing it anymore. I call it, I have no space for whiteness. And when whiteness shows up, I become a Dave Chappelle episode when keeping it real goes wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie, Leslie, in the workplace, how important is it for you to create allies? That's a good question. I don't look at it as creating allies. I look at it as finding your tribe. I don't want to have to convince someone. Yes. I don't want to have to cajole them. I don't want to have to educate them. I want them to come not fully formed because everybody's on a different part of this journey, right? Uh, but not to the point to where it's like, I have to convince you that you should be aligned with me. I, I don't want allies. I want accomplice. Yes. I want people who are in it with me. I, I want people who they will get in front of me when the arrows come. Because mm-hmm. invariably, if we push hard enough, the arrows do come. So I think it's important to find a place that has an environment where people like that exist. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, you do have to do the work to find allies and to help create allies and educate people. And I got to tell you, that's exhausting. That's, I mean, that's like we already have a job and now we're educating our coworkers. That's another job. We have to bring them along. We have to bring them along on our journey. And sometimes that can backfire. And it's backfired on me. But at other times, I've been at a place where I'm like, wow, I'm with the nicest people who are really trying to be an accomplice to what we're trying to accomplish to have a more inclusive workplace. But unfortunately, that's been the exception. I started in tech so long ago, there was no finding allies. Just finding people who weren't going to hit sabotage. <laughs> that was my thing. It's like, I just need to find people who don't sabotage because I was even coming to terms with being black and white spaces. Because thankfully, I grew up in an extremely multicultural neighborhood. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of people who were Hispanic, Latinx, Mexican descent, a lot of people from South Asia, from the Philippines, a lot of people from Southeast Asia, you know, maybe three, five percent, 40, 50 percent white people. But it was just very multicultural. But then all of a sudden, leave that and I go into tech and tech is really a white space. And I'm self-taught and I'm there with people who to major universities. So for me, it was a survival game and just finding people who, as I said, weren't out to sink me. And you want to talk about ambition, you want to talk about driven and imposter syndrome on top of that, knowing the only way I could get over my own imposter syndrome was be smarter than everyone in the room, Mm. but never being acknowledged as the smartest person in the room Mm. because I didn't have this education. It took a long time for me to be comfortable being the Black person in the room. 
for the first half of my career, I was always the only Black person in the room. When Edmund talks about allies, I think corporate-wise, majority of my corporate experience was in wealth management. And so I was in private equity. And that's a whole nother story when you're talking about dealing with 1% of the wealth of the United States and just the blatant, I've never experienced every day they let me know you are the minority in this space. And I don't think a lot of people from the Black American perspective I don't think they really take the time to understand what that's like, like they where you are reminded every day that you are you're in our world. Well, yes, we're letting you in. You can come in and play a little bit. We'll compensate you this high. I'll never forget this moment. One of the associates was about to have a baby and he was like, I need to talk to the manager. He went in and had his conversation with the manager. And I was like, how did your conversation go? He's oh, it went well. It went well. The next week we got an announcement. So-and-so, so-and-so has just been promoted. I was just in shock because I, I personally knew a minority, the only black man. I'm like, oh, I'm seeing this man working his ass off. And someone that just happened to, you know, getting ready to be a father. That was all it took. Promotion was right there. And you start to recognize they see themselves. So when they see themselves and their employees, they would do what they would want somebody to do for them. I went home, I called my sister. I said, it's rigged. I, I, I finally <laughs> seen it. It's, it's all rigged. It doesn't matter how hard we work. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter. You know, It doesn't matter. There's no way Edmund could walk into that office and ask his man, I'm about to have a baby. And? Mm. And? Hook me up, yeah. <laughs> so there's so many parts of this that just <laughs> hit, like, little parts of my experience. I did my first speaking engagement, like, public speaking engagement in 2015, maybe 2014. And it was, a, like, I look like an engineer event because most people didn't think I was an engineer. And I said something in there. Where I just said, you know, every day I walk into the building, I'm reminded that I'm black. Yes. Every day I walk into this building, I'm reminded I'm black. And so the next day I go into work and I get pulled aside by the comms VP and, you know, pulled into a room with HR and just like, what did you mean by that? I'm like, well, what do you mean? What did I mean? It's like, what do you mean by every day you come in, you are reminded you're black? And I'm like, are there any other black leaders in engineering at this 4,000 person company with 2,000 people in engineering? I'm like, there's not. It's like, are there any black women engineers? Yes, an intern, one out of 2,000 engineers. Like, so that's why I'm reminded because I don't see myself reflected in anything on a daily basis. And they were like, well, that makes us look bad. And I'm like, I'm going to give you something right now. I've been black longer than I've been in tech. That was the year, 2014, it was the year I just said, I'm black, I'm in tech. That's actually the sequence. And I'm not going to apologize for it. And I'm not going to sublimate it. And I'm going to lead as authentically as I can, given the spaces that we're in. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it is a struggle. And it's a struggle when you're leading people because you're managing Black people. You're one of the few Black people in tech managing other Black people. Right. This is a reality. I mean, almost every Black person I've ever managed has said, you're my first Black manager. So that's a lot of weight that gets put on our shoulders. And honestly, it's like, I don't manage people today. That's why I'm a technical advisor. I just talked because I just was burned out. Wow. Because showing up 
and showing up black every day. And then knowing that people who you are managing and leading are also showing up black. And, you know, it, like somebody comes to me and says, I've been put on a performance improvement plan. I know how that feels. I internalize it. You know, I have my admin at Google, just an amazing black woman. She had someone follow her through the building because they didn't believe she worked there, even after she showed them her badge. And so she comes to talk to me about this. And I mean, I get upset. Like, I'm mad. I'm like, I want to go choke someone out because, <laughs> because this is person's just trying to do their job. It's this constant dripping of racism and bias and marginalization that takes a toll. And it doesn't just take a toll on us. It takes a toll on the ones we're trying to pull with us. We're trying to pay it forward. And I can run interference with people. I can sponsor the shit out of people, but I can't sponsor them when a senior person in a meeting is marginalizing them because I'm not in that meeting all the time. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it over the last year and why I don't manage people today because that burden got to a point to where I was not objective enough in my role. No matter how far along you are on your entrepreneurial journey, there are moments when you may feel isolated, stressed, or grapple with imposter syndrome. Just know that you are not alone and perspectives from other founders that have overcome the same challenges can make all the difference. Comcast NBC Universal's Lyft Labs offers you that perspective by giving a platform to Black and Latino founders navigating the startup world and life's everyday challenges in season two of Founding in Color. This three-part docuseries lets you hear directly from underrepresented founders. As local sports network founder Dustin McMahon puts it, every time our company reaches a new milestone, I get further and further away from people who look like me. Each episode of Founding in Color offers up gems from startup founders like pop viewers Chris Weatherspoon and Felicity Ogimokin of Unscripted TV that'll make you think and inspire you to action. Whether your business is still an idea or you're pitching to a VC for funding to scale to the next level, this is a series to watch. You can now watch all three episodes of Founding in Color on Peacock. And Kishel, in the series, Edmund as Ethan is not only mentoring the people at his job, but also the friend group. To have that coming on both sides, you're coming externally, your friend group, and internally at work, mm-hmm. it's a lot of pressure. Absolutely. I was very intentional when I was writing Ethan because I wanted to make sure that one, Black men or women that's in high level positions, to Leslie's point, the onus is basically carried on the shoulder, right? So just hearing Leslie saying, like, I was the first Black manager for a lot of the people that were underneath me. I can only imagine how um, heavy that is. One, because that you look like them, they they automatically, like, he's going to be able to relate. I can send Leslie an email and be like, yo, they tripping out here. What do I do? And so not only are you counselor, not only are you mentor, you have to carry so many hats. And that is heavy. And when writing Ethan's character, I wanted to make sure that any professional Black men and women that held high-level positions, one, could see themselves represented, could understand the weight that he carried. But the fact that he recruited Xavier from Apple, and the only reason why Xavier left Apple was because a Black CTO? I don't think I'll ever get to see this at Apple. So I'm going over to tri-level because I believe in what this man is doing. Then for Ethan to see an ex-convict and say, hey, have you ever thought about being an engineer? 
That's how my father would speak. Have you ever thought about being an engineer? He would introduce things to young black men to have them think like, you know, yo, there's no way I can do that. I'm a former felon. And he'd be like, that's not true. You can do anything. So for Ethan to go back and pull in Malik and was like, let me just start you out entry level, get you involved. That's heavy, y'all. So it's like you got one person that's trying to pull the community, that's trying to pull the skillful. There's really talented people out here. I want people to get comfortable watching this series. My non-people of color that watch the series, you know, they're always like, what's your intent here? I said, I need everybody that watches Succession to watch Frame of Reference because those are the ones that are in control. Those are the ones that are in power. That audience is the hiring managers. Those are the CEOs. I need them to watch Frame of Reference and understand it's okay to hire a Ethan Scott and it's okay to put on a Malik Brown. And that's the change agent that I want to do through visual media. And Leslie, I want to go back to you, though, because do you feel like that is realistic? Realistic and maybe a little bit incomplete. We are shit umbrellas for our teams, not shit falls. It's like we're trying to keep the shit off our team so they can do their best work. So think about just doing that as a manager. That's a role, right? But then you're doing it because you understand how people of color are experiencing it because you know that. And so that's even more shit. But it's not just that it's even more shit. It's knowing that people still look up upon you as a diversity hire. That's real. And in any environment that you go in, there's always going to be one person, right? Isn't it like if you get five people together, there's going to be one person to think you're a diversity hire. You go to some companies, everybody's going to think you're a diversity hire. And that is insidious. And it's that way because it's like death by a thousand paper cups. It's like, it's just this little needling all the time. It's not somebody coming up to you, just like throwing it in your face, like you're not qualified. It's like calling you out. Well, you know how we used to do it. Da, da, da. And when I was at Google, I had a first time at Google, 2006, I had a saying that everybody loved to take their big brains out and put them on the table. And it's like, you know, I went to this school, I went to this school, I went to this school, I went to that school, I went to this school. You know, the way we did it here, with graph theory is this, all of this. People just throw that out there. And a lot of it, I was lost on because I didn't go to these schools. I didn't get that formal education. I had to teach myself. And while I knew practically how to do things, I didn't know a lot of the theory behind it that they had the opportunity to study. And that, unfortunately, has this effect of amplifying your own imposter syndrome. And so that's why I'm like, this is a little bit incomplete, right? Because where Ethan is at today, he's an amalgamation of his experience. And his experiences have not always been positive. He has experienced what I'm talking about. You can't go through tech being black and a CTO without experiencing this. I can give you the names of three to five black engineering executives you can talk to, and we will all have a lot of the same stories because that's the nature of the bees. And it's part of who we are. And we can be resilient. We can show up strong and we can be that way. But like your father at home, I wouldn't come home and smoke a cool, right? But, you know, I was like, at one point in time, I was hitting the scotch a little bit harder than I wanted to. <laughs> I'll give you what I term an ultimate test of resiliency in tech. I, uh, I was at Twitter. And, you know, Twitter at the time was really big in social justice. I had had a meeting a day or two before with the VP of diversity and inclusion, just about doing more. And I wanted to do more and I wanted to be involved more. So have that meeting, you know, like the next day I'm walking out and I hit our lobby and there's black people everywhere in the lobby, which is rare in a tech company. So I'm like, what are these black people doing here? And I thought maybe they were there for some event at another company, right? Because 
I'm at Twitter. And if something was happening with black people, I would know I'm a part of the employee resource group, blah, blah, blah. And so I asked them, I was like, hey, what's going on? It's like, oh, we're having this event at Twitter. I'm like, I, what do you mean you have an event at Twitter? I don't know about this. They're like, yeah, you know, um, you know, Al Gore speaking. And I'm like, Al Gore? What? I'm like, that's weird. She's like, yeah, and Ben Jealous is here. I'm like, oh, Ben Jealous, the former head of the NAACP? How do I not know about this? So then I start messaging other Black people, all like 10 of them at Twitter at the time, right? And I ask them, they know nothing about it. And I'm like, well, where is this happening? It's like, oh, it's happening in this event space we had in, in the building. So I go to the event space. There's Black people everywhere. There's Ben Jealous, Al Gore. I'm standing there. I'm like, I don't understand this. How is the, head, the former head of the NAACP at a Twitter-sponsored event and no one Black at Twitter knows about it? It was like... I mean, I was just standing there, you know, first of all, like, in, I was incredulous, right? I was like, what the hell? And so I messaged the VP of diversity and inclusion, a white woman named Janet. I'm like, Janet, what's up with this? Janet's like, oh, you found out. I'm like, yeah, because there's black people everywhere. I'm going to find out. She's like, well, we didn't think there was going to be enough room for the, all the black people at Twitter. There's like 20 of us. This space takes 500 people. And so I'm sitting there starting to see Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're doing part of the festivities where they were talking to these kids who were part of something called the Smash program, which is helping underrepresented teens uh, catch up in STEAM in high school. And they're all like Black and Hispanic. And they bring them up to talk about their experience and they pull out the whitest engineering director to interview them. It's like keeping it real. I lost my motherfucking mind. I just lost it. Like, this is where you have those existential moments where you're like, something is fundamentally wrong. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is, but I'm going to try to find out. So I remember, like, I left, I went home, I sat there, I called old friend of my father, and I was like, yo, man, I told him the same story. Like, what is up with this? I don't even understand it. It's like, dude, I was just meeting with this woman yesterday. She didn't bring it up. I don't understand. And he said, you've made it easy for them to forget you're black. I was like, oh, snap, he's right. I have been trying to fit in. I have been trying to assimilate. I've been trying to be what I thought I needed to be to get advancement, to get the stock, to get the title, to get the role. That so much of who I really am has been pushed aside so that it doesn't threaten them. So it's not in their face. And that's how it served me. And not only that, I saw how it serve the whole cause. Because if you can sit in front of me and decide not to tell me that Ben Jealous has come to the town and that we're sponsoring it, then, then you have no respect whatsoever for the work that you're supposed to be doing in inclusion. And you don't have any respect because the people in front of you didn't demand it from you. So that is what I mean about the, the incomplete side. Mm-hmm. I'm where I'm at because people have helped. I've had allies. I've had accomplices. I've had people who have, in many cases, looked beyond what they were told to about like education, blah, 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 and said, no, he can do the job. Let him do the job. And if he can't do the job, it's on me. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why I'm at where I'm at today. And who I am today is because I've had to navigate an environment that is extremely hostile at times. And I don't know if you can get any more hostile than that, right? Than been jealous. I mean, like, I'd rather just like call me the N-word. At least I know where I stand, right? But that was like one of those, one of those that just like, you just didn't give a fuck. Oh, Leslie, anyway. what you just so eloquently 
told is like a whole nother art and life part two. <laughs> um, so no, what you said is uh, it resonated with me. It hit me, hit me right here in my heart. Cause I, I, um, I could see, I could fully see the story that you were telling. And when you threw the bomb at the end, like, Oh, she didn't even think that, you know, that even represented you. And me and my sister get told a lot. I'm, I'm not anti anybody. I'm not anti anybody. I'm not anti anyone. I'm not anti anyone. I have to say that over and over again, but I'm very pro black. I'm pro my people point blank period. And just doing this for 14 years, being unapologetically black in every space that I come into, I even notice sometimes it makes people that look like me uncomfortable. And I'm like, why y'all uncomfortable? Like, why are you uncomfortable? Like, stop that. Stop it. And you just, you wonder, like, do you really think like they're not for you? You better show up as your full self because life is too short to pretend And I'm going to always affirm people that look like me. I'm always going to put on people that look like me. I'm always going to empower people that look like me. If anything you see Watts on, you're going to know that we love Black people. And I've found my voice in that regard. And I'm never letting it go. I'm going to hold on to it. I can sit in front of my non-people of color and speak this passionately in front of them. And I'm okay. And I ask, like, am I making you uncomfortable because of how pro my people that I am. And some will be honest and be like, it's it's new, it's new. And some will be like, it's completely okay, I get it, I wanna learn. And so um, I think we gotta be more courageous and confident about what you said. We have to show up 100% authentically ourselves. And that's my wish as a visual storyteller, that we can do that by being empowered, by seeing people that look like us in high places and high positions, and that it'll help us find our real voice, not the one we think they want to hear. We have to go a little bit deeper with this one. And the reason that I say that is, and I know, Leslie, you've probably heard this just as much as I have being in tech of like bringing your authentic self to work or bringing your whole self to work, especially as a Black person. And you hit the nail on the head when you said you basically made them so comfortable they forgot you were Black. But I feel like a lot of people are in this situation, but they never talk about it. And so I want to have the discussion around how can we keep our Blackness, especially in the workplace, and then make sure that we stay authentic. The thing I'll say is this. For me, it was really learning how to adapt. Now, my authentic self is like a spectrum if I'm being completely honest, right? Because every single thing that I've done, whether I was playing football, working at CBS, and now as an actor, that's me. That's what I love to do. The craft or the occupation or the job that I'm doing, it's authentic to who I am because I love doing it. In terms of me bringing my authentic self, there was a level of, I'm a professional at work and I'm going to navigate me being a professional at work as best as I can to be super efficient at what I do, but also in a place where I can be able to build relationship with people. To really get into it, I think what you have to do is you have to be in a space where you love doing what you do. And I was fortunate because I was given the opportunity to do that. And I'm in a space now where I get to do that. But I never forget that I'm still a professional at the end of the day. And me being a professional was always more important than me being comfortable because I'm all about the execution aspect of 
working. So that's my take. And mine comes from, I'm already black. I'm already an immigrant. I have a different chip on my shoulder and advocate for trying to get more people on. Like, Kishel, I'm with you. Same with you, Leslie. I'm with you. Like, I want to see more people that look like me in the places and the opportunities that I get to have. I want to see the same thing. But I'm just very realistic of the fact that I have to be a professional at all times when I'm in a work environment. And that's why I was able to get the accolades and be a captain and all that good stuff. That was at CBS Sports and the same thing with acting. I have to be very aware of the fact that being a professional was number one. I definitely want to hear perspectives because I'm eager to like see what people think about authenticity in the workplace. So it has to be a genuine call. Just like when George Floyd was prematurely taken out of here, you know, everybody threw up the black squares. It felt so premature to me. It felt very performative. And I think a lot of people say things they just don't mean. So in, in order to fall in line with the black square, oh, bring your whole authentic self to work. Yes, I hear you saying that, but how are you celebrating that? My sister holds a high-level position at a bank, and she'll get on her Zoom, and she'll have her her head tie on, and the ball in the front, and her earrings, and and she she called them on their bluff, and she you know she got on the Zoom, and she was like, "Good morning." She started to go down the list, and she said she could see the stairs on the Zoom, you know, looking at her, and she was pulling all of that in, and she was like, "Yes, I took the company up on their stance." You know, they said we could bring our authentic self to work, but I want to introduce to you: this is what Kalisha looks like when she's not at the nine to five. You know, everybody's working from home at that time, and she said that she gave a whole speech. Like, you know, when you tell people that have this overwhelming feeling to be a hundred percent themselves, she's like, don't dangle them carrots unless you mean it. <laughs> don't you do it? Because she said the moment that y'all said it, this is how I, and she showed up like that every single meeting. And she was getting IMs and messages from other black employees saying, Bravo, Kalisha. I applaud you, Kalisha. It starts here, Kalisha. Then she said she started seeing her counterparts come with their authentic selves, you know, whatever that is. And so sometimes I feel like um, things are said that that aren't really meant. And But when you say it, please have integrity. And I applaud my sister because she called them on their bluff and she came in herself and she was like, I'm not taking off my bamboos no more. She said, I'm wearing these to the meeting and I'm still professional. And I think you have to also define what is professionalism. Because a lot of the times it's white centered. It's whatever makes white people feel comfortable. And you can still be professional and have your wrap or your earrings. And those are the things that we're told is, you know, a location, ghetto. I'm like, ghetto is a location. So those are the things that we have to always be self-conscious of. And we always have to look at twice. So that's my stance on it. I feel like a lot of people are overly educated. They are overly qualified. They could run circles around a, a whole lot of people. So I don't think it's about skill. I really don't. I think it's more about white comfort. If they're more comfortable with you having straight hair, then they want you to come in with straight hair. They don't want to see the locks, but you know what I'm saying? But what if, you know, so it's, it's, it's stifling and change takes time. But I think if we're not showing up of, as our authentic self, nothing changes. So we have to come up. We have to be in the space in order for things to change. And a wise person told me, it's not your body that's showing up, it's your character. 
Mm-hmm. It's your character that's showing up. It's your integrity that's showing up. It's your, your patience that's showing up. It's your respect that's showing up. And I think if we focus more on character, it would be revolutionary. That's just my take on it. I'll give you an experience. Uh, sometimes how difficult it is to not be authentic and the cost of being authentic. I think we all remember Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings and the question she was asked and that look on her face that we have all had to deal with at some point where it's just... So I was interviewing for the CTO role at the New York Times and I had made it all the way through and I was doing my presentation in front of the board and some of the executive members. And so I asked, you know, we got like 20 minutes for questions. So I'm like, questions? Can I you know, answer any questions, clarify anything? Older white man is like, you know, I just want to tell you to, you know, you're such an articulate young man. Oh, I hate that one. I hate that. And I just had this moment, right? I'm like, I, you know, what you said, Edmund, is 100% correct. It's like, you have to be professional, right? You're at work, you're going to be professional. And authenticity is on a spectrum. Like being able to bring your full self is on a spectrum. And I know how I choose. I was not Katanji Brown Jackson that day. I was like, no, I'm going to tell you, know, I was like, let's spend some time on this. I'm like, you understand how problematic that is to say something like that. Right. I was like, and then all the other people jump in and they're like, no, what he really meant was like, no, no, I'll tell you what he really meant. Know what he meant. He meant that he's not used to hearing black people speak in this manner. And I was like, I'm shocked and amazed that we're having this conversation in that your publication has published at least five articles in the last 10 years on this very subject. And I said, what I find more disturbing about it is that at this level, at the C level, my ability to communicate is table stakes. I shouldn't be here if I wasn't articulate. It shouldn't have to be mentioned. I did not get that job. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I didn't get the job, because I, I got feedback and it had to be unanimous. And he was the lone dissenter. And he said, I have to learn how to navigate those situations more gracefully in the future, which is a fair criticism. If I want to preserve white people's comfort, I didn't give a damn about white people's comfort. I don't need the job. Like, I can imagine, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson, I can imagine so many other people who are at this role. It's a marquee role. It's the New York fucking Times, right? Like, you think about how much you can pull forward from that position, how much you can help out the culture. But I'm also thinking, I still got to deal with this cracker. And I'm not going to be able to do this on a daily basis. Sooner or later, like, we're going to have it out. And it will probably be worse for me then than it will today. Right. So I like went all the way and just said, I'm just 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 going to end it now. It's like I knew by doing this, I'm not going to get this job. I made that determination the moment I decided to go down the road. But these are the things that we have to navigate. And that is what I get when you say it's a spectrum. I could have done what I've done in many times before. I just sat there and been like, I'm just going to get this job and then show up and do what I know how to do and show all these people that that's just bullshit. But nah, I didn't want the job that bad. <laughs> Leslie, I respect that, man. And thank you for sharing. Kashel, you know, what you're talking about, Kalisha is funny because uh, I know Kalisha I, I, and I get it. I love it. I also have to ask you guys, right? And, you know, Dean, I, I just want to hear your perspective as well. Because for me, it's, there are limitations to some of the spaces that I've been in. So I don't, I can't speak on every single space, right? I think everybody's bringing themselves. And realistically, I always believe everybody wears a mask. It's like a representation of themselves, right? So it's like, 
this is the representation of Edmund that you you'll get on a Monday night on the podcast. But I don't really know if this is the same representation you get us on a Saturday night in San Diego. It's one of those things where this is me. Like I speak so people can understand me. You guys might love it. And thank you for that. But I remember I used to get made fun of because quote unquote, it's like, yo, you, you talk white. I'm like, no, no, no. I talk so you can, everybody can understand, not just you, not just her, but anybody who hears me speak should understand what I'm saying. And, you know, being an immigrant, like being able to communicate efficiently was super, super important to me because that wasn't always the case. I kind of want to just go back to what do you really think about bringing your authentic self is really based on environments and how comfortable you want people to feel and how reserved you may be. You may be an authentic person who's introvert. What are your thoughts on the environment calls for a certain type of authenticity? I think authentic is authentic. I don't think that it switches up very much. If you ask anybody, whether talking to in a private meeting or in a public meeting, what's Cashel's personality like? It's going to be very, very consistent. She loves Black people. She's passionate about her purpose. I think authenticity should just remain. And then I think there's a, that's a separate question that's also being asked in one question. To me, that's how it's coming across to me, Edmund, because I think we don't talk enough about how all white spaces are violent for Black people. So you're asking, we talk about environment. When you get Black people in all white spaces, that is not only mentally traumatic to me, because depending on what is inspiring you in that space, a lot of people is like, I'm just here to get a check. If I got to put this hat on for the check, I'm going to put the hat on for the check. You know, or some people is like, no, I'm, I'm in this in this space to be a change agent. So I'm going to be the one that make you uncomfortable. I'm, I'm going to be the one to Leslie's point to be like, yo, that's not cool. So it depends on who you are authentically, right? I don't think it's should change because to me that almost lacks integrity. It should be integrated. It should be one, no, no matter where you're at. I think Jay-Z, I love him when he say, I talk like this in, in front of the NFL owner, you know, the president of the NFL. I'm talking like this in the streets. I'm talking like this in the boardroom. He said, I don't switch up my language for anyone. And I appreciate that. It's empowering for me to hear that, especially as a Black American, because they often steer us to making non-people of color comfortable. Like what's uncomfortable about my existence? So it's almost like you have to ask the real questions. That's the way I approach it. And it's an adjustment. It is a learning curve, I would say, because there's a lot of things you have to unlearn because there was a time where I thought that was necessary. I would be a liar if I didn't. And then I'll never forget the day I was liberated. And I was like, uh-uh, and I'm not doing that no more. So there is a, you think you oftentimes have to wear that hat. And I was free the day I took that hat off. I said, I'm never putting that on again. I'm going to be myself no matter what. So I really think it's a process and a journey. And it's where you discover where you're at on the road. And sometimes you know why you put the hat on and you know why you switch it up. And then sometimes you're like, no, nah, that's not that's not what I'm doing anymore. I have to change. So it'll be easier for Aquanta and Reggie who's coming behind me. So I think it's very reflective. I think it's always evolving. I don't think it's ever stagnant. Not if you really want to evolve and change. That's just my perspective. This is interesting. I'm trying to split the baby on this one because I think you're both right. There are places that are not psychologically safe. <laughs> There's places that aren't physically safe, right? And speaking up can get your ass handed to you. And so, you know, either figuratively or literally. 
And we've all know how to navigate those spaces. We know when we walk in, whether or not we know how we have to be. And we can be authentic. And sometimes my authenticity is just, I just don't say a word because I can't speak now because if I speak, it may not be safe for me. And I have to take that into account. And we all do. So I think you're both right. Because if you don't have psychological safety, or if you don't have psychological and or physical safety, you can't speak up. But that doesn't mean that you can't show up authentically. But I'll tell you, there's some things that help you take that hat off and give you confidence to navigate. And I'll, I'll tell you what mine was. So it was my first meeting with President Obama. And he came and he sat right next to me. <laughs> I, and I'm fanboying out, right? Like He's like right next to me. I'm in a room. There's only six of us. There's not, there's not 600. There's, not, there's six of us in this meeting. Meeting with the president. But I have to be professional, right? You got to keep it together. You got to keep it together. Keep it together, right? Just focus. Don't look at your films. Like, focus, focus. And then just watching him, you know, navigate the meeting, be inclusive, bring people in, get their opinions, call me Silicon Valley guys. Like, hey, Silicon Valley guy, what do you think of this? And then had a couple more meetings where it became even more just like a meeting. You're just meeting with your boss's boss. No big deal. Still kind of a big deal, but, you know, you get used to it. I didn't know how that fundamentally changed me as a professional until I was in a meeting. It was like Jack Dorsey was in a meeting, some other guys, well, basically two or three billionaires in the meeting, right? Which once again, I'd never been in a room with a couple of billionaires before, but here I was and just kind of like going about it. Like it was nobody's business. And I remember walking out and not even thinking about it. And then a coworker I was with was like, were you intimidated at all? Because you didn't see him. And I'm like, nah, I was in the room with President Obama. I'm like, because there's nobody else who I would rather be in a room with. They're rich because they're white. He worked to get to where he's at. They did a little bit of work, but their whiteness got them there more than anything else. And that changed me. And it allowed me to be more authentic. So I'm not worried about that psychological safety of being in here with this big business person and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I can be myself because... I've been in a room with the president. There's no one else I'd rather be in a room with. You, no one else even comes close to even intent. I mean, I've been in meetings with Satya and he and I are going back and forth. People are just like, aren't you nervous? I'm like, no, it's just Satya. Good fuck who he is. He's not Obama. And if I could sit in a room with Obama and know that I belong there, if I could sit in a room with Obama and know that I did the work to be there, there's no room in the world that I will feel uncomfortable in. So I think the psychologically safe part makes a lot of sense. And it is true. I also think having a comfort level, even if the space may not be comfortable. Mm -hmm. And you do really get that, I think, by being exposed to, you know, exposed to President Obama. My imposter syndrome went out the window after that. I feel you, Leslie, on that Obama story. I think you just proved the point of frame of reference. When you see representation, when you see the power of people that look like yourself, the power of people that look like you and affirm you, the power of people that look like you and you see like you, you deserve to be here. You deserve to be at this table. That's liberating in itself. So thank you for sharing that. That was dope. I didn't know like until afterwards, I had to think, it's like, why am I not intimidated when before I would have just sat there like a wallflower? I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, because I was in there with the man. And they have done nothing compared mm. to him. Mm. And I belonged in the room with him. So I know I belong in the room with you. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. I needed that. So I do want to wrap this up with one more theme that we keep mentioning, but we haven't really delved into imposter syndrome. Mm. And we see that 
in frame of reference with Malik. He is an ex-con. He becomes an engineer and he's getting invited to all of these events with the CEO and with Ethan. And he's a little bit intimidated because they're not from the same hood he's from. They don't do the same things that he does. And there's that intimidation and imposter syndrome of does he really belong? And then Leslie, in the real world vein, it sounds like you've had some imposter syndrome moments. So what has it been like in tech when it comes to imposter syndrome for you? It's a spectrum and a continuum. As we talked about early on, when I said, you know, I was kind of hanging out with the neckbeards late at night at Apple doing my thing. I mean, they didn't care. They just cared that I was a nerd and I could understand what they were doing and they were willing to work with me with that. But over the years, tech made this turn towards credentialing. And it was no longer what you knew, it was where you went to school. Wow. It was who you knew and where you went to school and your pedigree. And I didn't have that pedigree. I didn't go to Stanford or Cal or MIT. And I remember when Google was really coming up and everybody was like, you know, talking about how hard it was to get an interview at Google and how hard it was to get hired, how they ask you your GPA and they ask you what school you went to. And I was just like, well, this place I'll never work. Honestly, it's like, like, and that's imposter syndrome. It's like, it's a place I will never work. It was like, because I don't have those things. And the thing is, is that even I started thinking it was important because that became the standard in tech that you had to go to at least 25 schools. And, you know, as time went on, started thinking, maybe this is not something I need to do because I don't have these credentials. I don't have these bona fides. So my first time at Google, 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. And it was the result of an acquisition. And by that point in time, I was eight to nine years into my career, been a senior director, had helped build Walmart into a billion-dollar business. The first question they asked in the interview process for um, acquiring the company I was with was, what was your GPA in college? That's like, like, talk about just like taking the imposter syndrome dagger and sticking it in your heart, right? And of course, I'm a fighter, right? Now I'm also like, hey, yo, man, like I've been doing this for almost a decade. I help scale walmart.com from nothing. My GPA has nothing to do with doing this. And he's like, oh, you know, we find that GPA is a big indicator of how well you'll do here at Google. And so make it through the interview process. Let's solve all their coding problems, whatever. Get the job. But in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, I don't belong here. Mm. Because I'm around all these people who have all these credentials and I'm not one of them. And you talked about this earlier where you know they would bring up theoretical aspects of systems design or computer programming that I just didn't know about because it's all academic and I didn't have that level of academic exposure. And so when I left Google, it was the happiest day of my life because I got out of an environment where I never felt like I could succeed. And it really was like, I wanted to get the hell out of tech because I was like, if this is what tech is becoming, I don't belong here because it's not valuing what I'm bringing. And I just feel like crap every time I show up at a meeting and have to deal with these guys pulling their brains out, going on the table. And that existed for another eight years. Where everywhere I went, I just I always felt like it was going to be that surprise. Somebody's going to jump on. It's like surprise, black man, you have a degree. Get out of here. Why are you hired anyway? Right. That's honestly how I. So that didn't go away fully, like until I was sitting next to Obama, and I was just like, oh snap, I belong here. I mean, I had that eight years I'm talking about was like a kind of a lull in my career because I didn't push myself to go and interview for jobs that I was qualified for, but I just didn't want to have to navigate not having the credentials. 
Cashel, in regards to when you were writing for Frame of Reference and that particular experience with Malik, is that relatable to what Leslie just mentioned? Oh, absolutely. I have family members that have served prison terms and are the most intelligent, intellectual minds of our time. Like I'm just sitting there listening to one of my cousins, God rest his soul, he's passed away now, but he could fix anything. I mean, anything. He was a genius. And he, of course, no different than anybody else. He made wrong decisions. He served some time in prison. And when he got out, having that stigma part of you trying to apply for a job, it follows you. And I just was like, I know tons of Malik Browns that are highly skillful and willful if someone would just give them a chance. And they walk in and to Leslie's point, do I belong here? You know, am I really supposed to be here? And if they have the right people that champion them, yeah, you're supposed to be here. What do you need? What help do you need? Let me do everything I can to make sure you stay on the right course. There's someone will take the time and truly see them. I think it's powerful. It's powerful. And just to the imposter syndrome, the way that I personally escaped that, I just was killing the mysticism. I was like, no, they're trying to make this too deep. You know, anybody can truly do anything if you teach them. And then what do you say for Zuckerberg who dropped out of college? What was it? Do you know what I'm saying? There's too many variables for us to try to pigeonhole ourselves into, quote unquote, what they think we ought to have in order to be in the room. And I I personally overcame that because I was like, oh, that's a form of intimidation. And I just refuse to be intimidated. So for me, I just like to just dumb down everything. But I do It's like there's no mysticism to this. Like anybody can do this, reverse engineer this. And that's what me and my sister have done a lot of, especially here with Watts Productions. We're like, okay, if they did that, let me go backwards. Okay, what did they do to get that done? And that's helped us overcome some imposter syndrome. And then when we're in rooms, we listen more than we talk. So I'm like, okay, I'm I'm gonna listen. Okay. And then and they don't even know I'm doing recon. So when I'm listening to this stuff, I'm like, okay, I'm taking this back to decipher it and be like, oh no, anybody can do this. Like this can be done by anyone. So that's just my personal way of overcoming it. And I think it's just something that you have to work on every day, truly. Because the spaces are always, you're always entering new spaces, new people, new ideas. It's that. It's the technical aspect. It's all these things that they, they, they put these gates and the gates are higher and they're thicker and they have barbed wire for us. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem. And that you know, also comes with the bigotry of low expectations. It's like they, they don't ever expect us to. And then if we do, they change, <laughs> they change the rules. I, and I'll give you an example. I was at Google again via an acquisition <laughs> in 2017. So here I'm back at Google. I'm like, how did I end up here again? This is like, this sucks. But I don't have imposter syndrome now, so this is going to be a totally different experience. So I was hiring engineers, and I get this recruiter, and she's going through this list of candidates. And first thing she starts off with is GPA. And I'm like, time out. I don't hear that. I don't care. I don't even care where they went to school. Just tell me what their experience is. This is what this recruiter would have been at Google for years. It's like, we think the GPA is a good indicator of how you will succeed at Google. And I was like, no, it's not. 
I'm like, I heard that shit a decade ago. <laughs> I just like, I got mad at it. I heard that shit a decade ago. And it wasn't true a decade ago. And it isn't true today. And I'll tell you what, I want to talk to your manager because I want to know where you're getting this information. It's fundamentally false. It's bias and you need to stop. But it's gatekeeping. Mm. And you talk to managers. And when you do that, you talk to the managers, you put in their mind that it's important. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody doesn't come with that, they don't get the interview. These are the things that I'm always fighting back against in big tech companies is because it's part of the culture. It's part of the system. And I think that when you talk about imposter syndrome, when you talk about the obstacles that people face, all people face coming in, women face, women of color in particular face coming into tech, it's, it's not just what you see, it's what you don't see. It's just like me going to these companies, knowing I have to do a background check, always a little bit afraid something's going to show up. And once again, it's like, I'm sitting next to Obama. I, you know, I pass the Secret Service, right? I mean, the FBI has looked in every part of my background, but it's still in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. These are some of the things that are unique in our experience, and, and something I've told CEOs. You know, when they're you know talk about diversifying the workforce, and they want to be good allies, blah blah blah. I just say I'm just going to like say something that you have to start to internalize. Most Black people have had some exposure to law enforcement that's not been positive. That can't be disqualified because you just don't know. Our communities are over-policed. The justice system and the policing system is inherently racist. And, and if you're using that to not give someone a job, you are just perpetuating the system of inequality. Mm -hmm. So I was at this company called Gusto. It's a SaaS payroll provider. And they were hooking up with this company called, um, I don't know, they do background checks. <laughs> I can't remember the name. They do background checks. When I heard that they were doing this, as an executive of the company, I went and I said, hey, these, this is why background checks are problematic. I don't think we should do this product because it's going to end up, you know, for all these people who are going to be using them, it's going to end up hurting the people you say you want to help. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so anyway, so I didn't hear anything else. And then we had it all hands. They were talking about launching the product in a week. And before I could even get my mind around it, we're about to launch this, our head data scientist jumped up as a black woman. And she was just like, we had this conversation six months before I had the conversation. And I told you the exact same concern. And she's also a leader of the company. And this is not an all hands with like 2000 people. <laughs> and I just like jumped in, right? Part of the executive staff, I jumped in and I'm like, I'm like, so let me see if I understand this straight. You had two black executives tell you about the, how problematic this is and why and give you the data about why it is. And you still went and did this and you're going to launch this. I'm like, I'm like, that's wrong. I'm like, you just silenced your black leaders. And it was a watershed moment for the company because they were just like, one, we can't believe this happened. Two, we can't believe you didn't listen to us. And so we actually ended up scrapping the project. And they still, even so, they're like, well, these people work so hard on it and they've been putting so much time into it. And I'm just like, I don't care. I'm like, I don't care how much time they put into it. They were going to end up hurting hundreds of thousands of people because Gusto as a payroll platform employs about 5 million people. This is the part about like, talk about you want to be a CTO. Like this is what a CTO is about. These are the kinds of circumstances. These are the kind of situations that I have found myself in. And they're not just technical decisions, they're not just personnel decisions. They're black decisions. And that just like, I get excited about it because I know that's where we make a difference, but it's also exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine the exhaustion of having to do that and then doing that and not being heard. I could kind of understand not listening to one black voice. I mm -hmm. couldn't understand not listening to two black voices who were telling you the same thing six months apart. And we didn't even know that either of us had the discussion. I didn't know mm -hmm. she had that discussion. 
And like one of those moments where like my Slack blew up, people were just like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, this is why I do leadership because this is impactful. In any other company that would have gone out, it would have done what it would have done and nobody would have thought about it. And that's the importance of, I think, of having our faces and our bodies in those roles where we can make these types of decisions. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. But before I completely end, just want to give everyone an open forum. I know we've talked about a lot today from imposter syndrome, being a CTO, being Black in the room. But is there anything else that anyone would like to share? Well, I can say that I'm hoping that Blacks in tech in Silicon Valley sees frame of reference. And I hope that when they see this series, they see themselves. And I hope that I did a good job of identifying the pain points and also just empowering the presence of Blacks in tech. And Dean, I want to thank you for this platform. It's important. And I applaud all that you're doing to amplify Black voices in technology. It's super important. And I'm thankful for this collaboration. I'm just thankful for the platform as well. And Kashel, Dina, Leslie, thank you guys so much for everything that we talked about. These are stuff that makes me think, you know, gives you different perspective. And the older I get, the more I realize I don't know nothing. I don't have answers. So it's always good to get perspective because you learn. Let's hear you speak. That's three, four, five years of experience I just gained. Same with being around Kashel. And the one thing I just want to leave and end on is for people to truly understand who they are. I think it's important to understand who you are Mm -hmm. and how you can improve and evolve. And that's something that I've been working on my entire life, trying to figure out who I am in that moment in time. And then you look back, you're like, wow, me now and me 10 years ago are like completely different people, but the exact same person. So I think that's truly the fascinating thing about life, the evolution of life, the constant learning and education and having conversations like this is how people grow and get to think outside the box and see themselves out of them, their bodies, you know? So thank you for giving us this platform to do that. Uh, I, was just, I just wanna say thank you as well. You all bought so much knowledge and information. I just appreciate you all for being open to sharing. I know everyone's going to really appreciate this episode and make sure you check out Frame of Reference. Maybe it sounds like season two, we're gonna have Leslie added on to the group. I would love to be in the writer's room. Oh my God. Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.